Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great privilege for the Empire Club to welcome to its podium Canada's 28th Governor-General. David Johnston is a remarkable man. He's a scholar, athlete, and dedicated public servant. He has served on many provincial and federal task forces and committees. He's written or co-written 24 books. Sounds like that number may have increased since I got my 24, but... <laughs> I see. Okay, well, I'll, I'll edit that. Uh, he holds honorary doctorates from over 20 universities and is a companion of the Order of Canada. Just prior to becoming Governor-General, he served as the fifth president of the University of Waterloo. He's been named to Harvard's Athletic Hall of Fame, having distinguished himself playing the most Canadian of sports, hockey. So he's very accomplished. I think you get that. But the thing that's the most amazing about him is he's a recovering lawyer. It endears him to me. <laughs> I'm sure you'll all agree with me that we need more lawyers in positions of authority in this country. <laughs> On a more serious note, the Governor-General is here to speak with us today about the challenges Canadians face as we approach our country's 150th anniversary in 2017. He'll explain to us his vision uh, of that anniversary is a catalyst prompting each of us to think deeply and creatively about how we can give back to our country. His speech today is timely. If we're to make the anniversary meaningful, we need to seize the occasion today. We're delighted to have him sharing his vision for 2017 with us today. I would now like to invite the Governor-General to the podium. Andrea, thank you very much. Um, I have not satisfied the precondition to become a to be a recovering lawyer. The precondition is this: uh, I'm on a one-year leave of absence from my law firm, and the reason for that is uh, I was in my third year of law, my only year of law in Canada. I'd studied in the UK for a couple of years, and uh, in September, the first month of uh, those studies, I went to find my articling position, one year of articling for the next year and uh, was all signed up. And the next month, the dean of the law school said, we'd like you to come and join the faculty. I said, I'd love to, sir, but I can't. Uh, he said, why not? I've, I said, I've signed my articles of indenture. And he said, oh, pacta sunt servanda, contracts must be honored. And I said, well, something like that, sir. He said, well, I'm glad to tell you that contracts of personal servitude were outlawed in the British Empire 200 years ago. You're a free man. <laughs> And uh, said, why don't you ask them if they'll release you from your articles of indenture? So I went to see Purdy Crawford. Don, you would know Purdy. Many people in the room would be, to whom I was articled. And he said, well, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I'd like to teach for a year or so. He said, well, you go and do that. And we'll give you a leave of absence. And when you've got the courage to face the real world, come and we'll teach you how to practice law. And for the five years after that, I went back to renew it. And I go back to see the firm about every three or four years. And I just remind them that when I've got the courage to face the real world, I'm going to come and they're going to teach me how to practice law, and it terrifies them. <laughs> so my question to you is, where were you in 1967? I see a few fresh faces out there. You're too young to remember that special year. I also see some people here today with gray hair like mine. Don, you celebrated your 80th birthday yesterday. Happy birthday. Much gray hair, my cousin here. I think most of you remember 1967. I sure do. During Canada's centennial year, I was a young law professor at Queen's University in Kingston. 
I was a very green teacher at the time, second year as a law prof. I was also a very green husband. My wife, Sharon, and I had been married for three years. Now is 50 plus. And we just started to plan the arrival of our first child. So, an inexperienced professional, fledgling spouse, I was like many Canadians at the time. Our emerging generation of men and women shared some important qualities. We were confident, forward-thinking, and ambitious, and we expressed those qualities in many ways during our centennial year. And I still have the most vivid memories of that time. Canadians built hundreds of arenas, schools, libraries, community centers, in which young athletes, students, and families could play, learn, and grow together. Qui ne se souvient pas d'Expo 67, plus qu'une célébration du Canada, ce fut notre cadeau au monde entier. Pourquoi avons-nous célébré notre centenaire? Pourquoi avons-nous donné de façon si grandiose et si généreuse? Our centennial was an unprecedented opportunity for our entire country to reflect, to take stock and imagine our future, a future that would see us stride continuously closer to fairness, equality, and justice. Looking back over 100 years together gave us the power to look forward and focus all of our attention and energy on bringing about that kind of Canada. Well, much has changed since our centennial year. For one thing, Sharon and I have now been married for almost 51 years. We have five children, and as of two weeks ago, 12 grandchildren. Much has also changed in our country. We're a much more diverse country now, a fact that puts increasing emphasis on our ability to remain tolerant of our differences and inclusive in our outlook. We're a more urban community, country than ever, and we're grappling with the difficulties of living in, working in, and getting around our growing cities. Much has changed in our world, too. We're living through an extraordinary moment in time, a hinge point in history. Profound globalization, disruptive technological change, major demographic shifts, momentous concerns related to our natural environment, changing attitudes towards and expectations of governments and public services. So with these challenges at home and beyond our borders staring us straight in the face, I have a question for all of you here today. What are we giving to Canada on its 150th birthday in 2017? More broadly, what are we doing to make Canada a truly smart and caring nation? An occasion as momentous as Canada 150 comes on along only once, maybe twice in a lifetime. How are you going to use this rare opportunity to do something special for your country to give a gift to Canada? Because after all, that's what we do at birthdays. As Governor General for almost five years now, I've been crisscrossing the country, meeting and speaking with Canadians of all ages, regions and backgrounds, and I've asked them to think deeply about this question of their gift to Canada. We're now just a year and a half from 2017. Canada 150 is fast approaching. Now is the time to put plans in motion, to turn ideas into action, the time to act. Because the country we dream of won't build itself. It requires strong wills and innovative actions. Well, what do I mean by innovative? Innovative is a word that gets bandied about quite often so much so that it's no longer anchored in any real meaning. But being innovative is not being inventive. Innovation is a process, a means by which we improve productivity and, this is essential, create better ways for people to organize, operate, and live. 
Such improvements and adaptations are vital to maintaining and advancing our quality of life in Canada. So just as we must innovate in science and engineering, medicine, education, we must innovate in how we give. We must use giving to reach marginalized people and undressed, unaddressed collective needs. We must give in ways that ensure every single Canadian can reach his or her full potential and enjoy a life of dignity and meaning. We must give using increasingly effective and more ambitious methods to overcome the daunting challenges we face right now in our time. Well, what does innovative giving look like? Here's an example. I was here in Toronto earlier this month at the Mars Center for Impact Investing. Impact Investing. Members of the G7 Social Impact Investment Task Force were also there, gathered in Canada for the first time. Those men and women were working together to gain a better understanding of how to harness private capital for public good while generating financial returns for investors. This kind of investing recognizes that Canada, like its G7 partners, faces significant social, environmental, and financial challenges. The scope and gravity of these challenges call on us to be innovative because governments sometimes lack the ability or the flexibility to respond adequately. It's not that there isn't enough money in the world to address these challenges. It's that the money is tied up in financial markets held as interest-earning investments rather than being deployed where it's needed most. Lorsque nous investissons notre argent afin d'aider les gens, les communautés et les nations à surmonter leurs défis et ce, tout en donnant des revenus aux investisseurs, nos dons sont innovateurs car ils créent quelque chose de positif. Social impact is just one example of unlocking our assets for the greater good. Our task in the next year and a half is to uncover and start carrying out more such examples of innovative giving. I have no doubt we can. I'd like to emphasize the importance of being smart in our giving, as well as caring, keener minds and kinder hearts. Smart giving means two things, being innovative, as I've just mentioned, as well as constantly measuring our impact. Both are so important. Social finance is a great example of smart giving, not least because of its focus on measuring impact. What is the social impact of this particular investment? Measurement allows us to chart progress, improve performance, and communicate value. It also allows us to avoid unnecessarily duplicating efforts and administrative costs. So, for example, if you want to support a good cause, job number one is to find a charity with the same aim. If there isn't one, job number two is to ask whether you might help an existing charity innovate and fulfill that name. And if you still can't find a match, then job number three is to fill that gap. With limited time and resources available, smart giving is so key. We want to form partnerships and find synergies to amplify our giving and make it more effective. We want to build on the good things Canadians are already doing. We want to be smart in our caring, and that means innovation and that means measuring impact. Our country has a long and storied history of innovation, technological, economic, political. In fact, Canada itself has, called, has been called an innovation in diversity and multiculturalism, and is quite a rare specimen in that respect, an experiment to test the proposition that all the peoples in the world can live together in harmony. Just think about that for a moment. 
One of the great delights of this job is you have the privilege of meeting people that you, impress you and cause you to think a lot. One of these was Angela Merkel, who was with us a little over a year now. We spent a delightful time at Rideau Hall, and um, she is a research chemist by background, and I'm a university guy who is like the kid in the candy store with questions. So she was cross-examining me quite persistently about several subjects, and I was cross-examining her, and we kind of agreed it would be 10 minutes for her turn, 10 minutes for my turn. One of my first turns was whether the European Union, this remarkable assembly of nations who had just won a Nobel Peace Prize a couple years before for keeping peace in Europe for 60 years, quite an accomplishment when you think of the history of the last 1,000 years. And so my question to her is whether the European Union... Her question to me was, how does this crazy quilt Canada, this mixture of so many different things work, how can it hold together? To answer her, I actually had a book. I guess I probably bought 50 copies of this book now, Why Nations Fail by James Robinson of Harvard and Darren Osamoglu of MIT, and it has a wonderful Canadian connection. It's a product of the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. Eric, something near and dear to your heart. The Canadian Institute for Advanced Research created by Fraser Mustard here in Toronto, which tackles those large problems that cannot depend upon their solution, the expertise of a single discipline. And the thesis of, of Robinson and Esamoglu on why nations fail or why certain societies fail and why others succeed is very simple to state. It's those societies, those nations, those communities that are inclusive in their economics and their politics are in a virtuous upward circle. And those nations or communities that are extractive in their economics and politics are in a downward circle. Notice not inclusive and exclusive, which is a 180-degree relationship. It's inclusive and extractive, which is more like 145 degrees. Chancellor Merkel's English is very good. But for five minutes after I presented this book with that explanation, she broke into German. It was a little bit embarrassing because she was chatting with her ministers in German. I loved it. I could pick up enough to know that this was a rich conversation. And in about five minutes, they identified 17 German synonyms for the word extraction or extractiveness. <laughs> and, and that was what she was trying to figure out. How with this centrifugal forces, with this disparate set of of colonies, etc. How could you knit it all together? And the inclusiveness, of course, was the secret. And that was a wonderful conversation. And at the end of it, um, she said some very attractive things about Canada and how important that social innovation of inclusiveness had to do with the world that we're planning. And how much the embrace neighbor to neighbor is a part of that. Uh, how important has it been from the time of the very first European settlers meeting with the indigenous people who are already here, who were welcomed and were taught to how to understand and to deal with a very, very difficult climate, that that inclusiveness became part of the DNA of Canada. Champlain's first settlement would not have survived the first two winters had the native tribes not provided fresh meat for them and a tea they made from evergreen needles that uh, actually combated scurvy, we now understand. They didn't at the time. And that's a very interesting story on that social innovation. And I would say we must ensure that we bring innovation to our giving, because both innovation and giving are profoundly human processes. So we must foster a culture of giving at the community level. All giving is local, and community-based initiatives are so important. My giving moment 
a social media campaign we inspired at Rideau Hall, features thousands of such individual and neighborhood acts of caring. The campaign aims to give voice to those acts, to build up and amplify the great work being done by individuals and charities to try to build smart and caring into the DNA of Canada. That's what we do as Canadian citizens. We look after our neighbors. So there are stories about Canadians donating money to charity, volunteering at animal shelters, tending community gardens, offering their professional skills to those in need. I'll have a wonderful example this afternoon. I'll be going from here to meet many of the volunteers for the Pan Am and Para Pan Am Games. Guess how many volunteers are involved in that modest enterprise? It's 24,000. 24,000. Just put a kind of, do a financial calculus and put a value on that contribution of 24,000 volunteers, many of whom have been working for a year in preparation, not just the two and a half weeks of the games. Uh, it's the third largest uh, sport international enterprise in the world, the two others being the Olympics and the Pan-Asian Games. Uh, I was in Prince George a few months ago for the Canada Winter Games. There were 4,000 volunteers from that community who had made those games work uh, and had worked on it for a year. The Vancouver 2010 Olympics, another example of extraordinary volunteer effort. These are just shining examples of something that could not occur and certainly not occur, occur with the quality that the Pan Am Games and Parapan Am Games in Toronto will be in the Vancouver Olympics will and the Prince George Canada Winter Games without that kind of enormous effort. Um, it's really uh, something that is largely too unnoticed but absolutely profound and essential to carry out these great endeavors. Let me move from the micro to the macro just for an example. One woman, Alison Fair, marked her 40th birthday by undertaking 40 acts of giving during her milestone year. Not only did she follow through, but these giving moments also inspired her to keep giving. What an amazing feeling it is, she says, to have someone smile at you and say, thank you, you made my day. Such simple but meaningful acts can inspire us to make our nation's 150th anniversary one for the ages. So let's rise to that occasion. And that's my challenge to the hundreds of Canadians here today and to the millions beyond these walls, and that will be the message that uh, I will express on July 1st, on Canada Day. A few years ago, uh, Calgary Mayor Nahid Nenshi challenged citizens in Calgary in a very interesting way. He'd become mayor, and he appointed an advisory committee to do things that made the community even healthier. And he said, they came up with an idea I thought was really dumb at the start, and I rejected it out of hand. But they kept persisting and persisting and said, give it a try. Give it a try, it'll work. So he said, I did. And the idea was very simple, to ask each Calgarian to do three things to make Calgary a better place. He tells the story of a little five-year-old boy. He was in the school, the little boy was, and asked the kids if they were doing three things to help Calgary. The little boy held up his hand. Yes, Mr. Mayor, I am. He said, what are they? He says, well, I, I organized a little campaign to clean up the litter on the way back from school to my home. And he said, we had a new kid in the class that was feeling a little shy, so I brought him into our neighborhood so he could play with my friends, and he's now become friends of all. So that's two. And Mayor says, what about the third? He says, well, he says, I promised my, my little brother I'd stop beating up on him. <laughs> he says, I, I haven't gotten very far in that one, but I'm still working. <laughs> so Nahid says that this was actually took off like wildfire. It just spread around Calgary. And so... Um, uh, it, was a, um, it was a great occasion for them, but Calgarians being very enterprising people, um, then um, 
came along with Imagination 150, the group that is sparking good ideas for our 150th, and said, why don't we challenge all Canadians to do three things for their community and for Canada? So I'm happy to borrow that idea that began with Nahid Nenshi and then was built upon by Imagine 150 of asking all Canadians, do three things to make your community a better place for, 100, for 2017. They can be big, they can be small, but make them special. Take your knowledge, skills, and experiences. Take your ambition, drive, and intelligence. As Take your professional and personal contacts and use them to carry out the three giving moments in 2017. Be smart, be creative, be caring, be innovative. And then find a way to tell the country. Share with all of us what your giving moments are and what inspired you to give them. Do so not out of arrogance, that would not be Canadian, but in a spirit of confidence, optimism, and altruism. Lord Bing of Bimi, our country's 12th Governor General, once called on Canadians to have minds as vast and hearts as big as this land we love. I echo his evocative words and the ambitious energy behind him. Alors que nous nous préparons au 150e anniversaire du Canada en 2017, je vous demande de saisir cette occasion unique pour trouver des moyens innovants pour donner. Trouver trois cadeaux pour notre pays qui feront de nous une nation meilleure, plus éclairée, plus bienveillante pour les générations d'aujourd'hui et pour les générations à venir. And as we look toward Canada's 150th birthday in 2017, I ask all of us to take advantage of this momentous occasion and come up with smart ways to give. Remember that means being innovative and measuring impact. Find three of your own special giving moments that will help make ours a better nation for our time and for generations to come. As Lord Bing said, with minds as vast and hearts as big as this land we live, Let's make these special giving moments the great celebration project of Canada 150. Let me end with two of my, my, perhaps my favorite lines, certainly my two favorite lines from George Bernard Shaw, who says, some people say things as they are and wonder why. We dream of things that ought to be and ask why not. Why not? Thank you. Merci. Your would be done from the, from the stage for you. Okay, thank you. His Excellency, the recovering lawyer, has agreed to subject himself to cross-examination. Are there any questions for His Excellency on this great speech today? My five daughters, three of whom are lawyers, love occasions like this. (laughs) (laughs) We've got a couple of mics in the audience. Any of the students over there have some questions? What three things are you going to do for Canada in 2017? <laughs> Anybody beating up on their little brother over there? <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, the uh, Honorable uh, Governor General um, David Johnston. I, um, on behalf of the um, students at Centennial College, I have thought about doing three things um, to make Canada a better place. Um, one is to um, support young people in their um, educational aspirations and uh, employment search. I think that jobs is a really big issue for 
young people today. So if we all can work together and give access to um, young people for jobs, then that would be great. Um, and the second thing I would think about is to work for gender equality. Um, Canada is a wonderful place um, uh, for women to um, uh, to achieve um, a, a good career um, for political participation, but I believe that there's more to do. Um, and uh, the last thing would be to um, contribute to um, um, changes in um, the issue of environmental protection. Um, I believe that um, climate change is um, a really, really pressing issue um, in, um, in our today's society. Thank you so much. I wish you'd given a speech. What, what outstanding observations. Uh, sustainable development, the third one. I, I had the great privilege of being the founding chair of the National Roundtable on the Environment and the Economy. And we really can work together to have economic development that respects our environment. That is possible. It just means being smart and caring, being ingenious. And Canada should do that better. On the second issue of gender equity, uh, I'm the father of five daughters, and this afternoon at out-of-school time, I'll be with my number two daughter, who's a lawyer who runs Catalyst Canada, which is attempting to raise the opportunities for women in um, senior executive positions and boards. And I was asked, it was about three days ago, I was asked at a conference, if you were king or queen of the world for a day, what single thing would you do? And I said, I would do whatever is necessary to ensure women have equal opportunity for education. If I had one thing to do, it would be to ensure that women around the world have the same opportunities for education as men. Think of how transforming that would be. Think of how transforming it's been to Canada, where we've come a long ways but have a ways to go but other parts of the world. On the, uh, on the first observation uh, you make about opportunities for young people, both for education and jobs and careers, I'll say two things. One is I've just finished reading the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. It's about 400 pages long. Uh, it's about 94 recommendations, a lot. The stories are compelling. And the single most striking observation I have about that is how little we non-Aboriginals understand about six or seven generations of the life of Indigenous peoples, in particular the residential schools, but beyond that. And our first job is just to overcome that knowledge gap, that ignorance gap. Um, and so that's a big challenge for us. How do we give Aboriginal people the equality of opportunity so that they can reach the same level of education standard, job opportunities, et cetera, as non-Aboriginal people. That's a, for me, I think that's the biggest single domestic challenge we have, and I hope we really answer it with 2017. The second thing I'd say about that is I love this country, and it has so many good things, and we have some challenges. One of the challenges is in an OECD graph that I often use, Organization of Economic Cooperation Development, the 32 or so more industrialized society. And they, they measure social mobility in a variety of ways. One of them is a chart looking at educational achievement. They take each of the 32 countries and they identify the degree to which children meet or exceed their parents' level of education as a pretty good measure of upward mobility. huh? And they divide each of the country's populations into quintiles, 20% each. Guess what? The top four quintiles, the top 80% in Canada, has, higher, has the highest grade on that index of any countries. So 
For 80% of our population, children meet or exceed their parents' level of education to a greater degree than any other country in the world. Say bravo, eh? Equality of opportunity. Hold your applause. (laughs) There's another side of the story. Hold your applause. (laughs) The other side of the story, you think the bottom 20% would be really up there, top one, two, or three? It's in the bottom third. The bottom third. So why do you have this contrast? A country that has done so well on educational opportunity in the top 80%, but not the bottom. Well, 4.7% of our population are Aboriginal peoples. You can start there to find answers, but you can look into any inner city and you'll find pockets where that just isn't happening. That's a big challenge for us, and that's why your three observations are pretty attractive to me. Brian? Thanks very much. I enjoyed very much, Governor General, your vignette about uh, President Merkel. Yeah. And uh, I think the point about inclusivity was a really important one. I'm, oh, I wondered, however, if you would share more about what she said about the future of the EU uh, in light of your comment about uh, uh, inclusivity and as well in light of, of course, today the situation in Greece. Yeah. Well, what she said was she, uh, she has great admiration for Canada um, and our ability to make that work. Uh, she's a, a, a very thoughtful person. She's very... Uh, she's non-combative, but has a very, very strong mind. And, and she, in our conversation, say you've had a few, exam- few uh, advantages. You've had no war in your soil for 200 years. Uh, you've had a vast territory to develop and to open up. Uh, and you've had a very welcoming approach to immigrants. And you've blessed, been blessed with natural resources. But I think most of all, the freedom from war, the freedom from civil conflict has been very big. But then I think on the, on the complementary side, she would say, perhaps because you were forced to live together with people of difference from the very beginning to survive, um, you managed to learn how to live with them. Long before the pact between the French and English, um, after 1759, 1763, with the Peace of Paris, and long before 1867, Champlain was, uh, Champlain was the first governor. Uh, if you ask me who my favorite governor general is, it would be Champlain. Uh, now, he was not quite governor general, but essentially he filled that function. And there's a book by David Fisher, a Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, called Champlain's Dream. And I held it with me in my hand. My grandchildren call me Grandpa Book. I love books, and I read them to them when I, my, I was announced in this position, because books mean something to me. And I held it because when I read Champlain's Dream, my whole view of Canadian history changed. I had understood Champlain from my high school Canadian history as a conquistador, came from France, planted the fleur de lis, said we're going to Christianize the natives and take as many furs as we can out of this country, and some fish as well. Wrong. Champlain, first of all, was baptized a Protestant, became a Catholic because he had to change his religion to survive. He was constantly at war with the nobility because he was trying to build permanent settlements in Canada, not exploit. He learned a number of the Indian languages himself. He established peace with all of the Indian tribes in the Great Lakes areas except one, the Iroquois, and he didn't manage that because they were the enemies of all the others. He believed in a rule of law, democratic participation, and building permanent settlements which were inclusive to all. That was Champlain's dream back in 1608. And that, I think, has been part of what made Canada ticks ever since. And so that's the kind of conversation we had with, uh, with Chancellor Merkel. With respect to whether the European Union, I think she said it's going to be a tough job. <laughs> She's meeting, I think, with the well, meeting on the Greece challenge as we speak, and that's a tough job. John? Can we go 
Microphone behind you, John. John, John's a barrister. He doesn't need a microphone. And <laughs> Some of us were 21 in 1967 and worked at Expo 67, and we couldn't have imagined us at 150, other than we knew what age we were going to be. Um, what do you see 50 years hence for Canada? What a good question, John. You know, we've thought of, of, of um, actually asking that question to the students from Centennial and the and young people across the country. 50 years is a long way out, but it's appropriate to ask for to 15 or 20 year olds because they'll be living and raising their grandchildren in that uh, in that time. Um, we'll certainly see a world that has changed a lot, but I guess at the heart it would be uh, what I've been preaching about today, and that is a smart and caring nation that we will be known around the world as a place that is smart and working as hard as we can to be smart and always caring, always having a regard beyond ourselves and beyond our immediate family to our neighbors. And um, the smart part is something that we've had some good success in. We have a public education system that is the envy of the world. Is it the best in the world? On a number of, in a number of areas, it is. You look at our scores in um, primary and secondary school tests on the OECD. We do, we do better than any other English-speaking nation. The Asian nations are moving well along. Uh, we have uh, colleges and universities that are accessible, of high quality, um, by and large affordable, although some challenges to do there. Um, we, uh, I think, have as our greatest enemy uh, being complacent about the gifts we have, and we'll have to overcome that. But I would see us as a country in the world of uh, 50 years hence. We'll probably have a population of 75, 80 million, so we'll now be up there in terms of population. But I, I hope we will be... Uh, admired for being smart and caring. And given my background as a university educator, I would hope we would be seen as the Athens to the new Romes, the place where education knowledge is, um, is valued and respected uh, enormously. And I would say the sovereignty of nations in this 21st century will be more defined not by the size of the gross domestic product or how large an armada of ships they can put together, but how well they develop the talent of all their people and use that talent to improve the human condition. That would be my dream for Canada. Other questions? We running out of time? One over there. Got a microphone over there, please. One of the things that I've been thinking about is in some cultures, the person who's being celebrated gives a gift back rather than receive gifts. And I wonder if you can think forward to, if Canada were to, rather than think about what it can do for itself, what can we as Canada do for the world? What can we give as our gift in celebration of our 150th to the world? What would that be? Well, what a, you know, what a thoughtful approach to extend that notion of the family beyond the Canadian family to the world family. I would say the greatest gift we could give would be the lessons of giving back, that a smart and caring nation is a smart and caring community, is a smart and caring world, and to engender that degree of respect. And that's why I would say if I had one thing to do it would be to educate women. Why? Because I see that as such a, not only the right thing to do from a fairness point of view, but all of a sudden you take the other half of the population of the world and you develop the talent to its best, and it's a pretty talented half, uh, and then you unleash that in the world, that would be, I think, a very important contribution. So I guess I'd answer your question by saying I would like Canada to be the Athens to the new Romes with respect to being smart and caring. You know, the other thing I want to say about your question is, is how important it is that you move from the immediate concentric to the larger. Uh, we are, 
as Hugh, as Frank Scott once said, uh, I am a citizen of Canada, but I am a citizen of the world, and my country is the country of the mind. We really should be thinking of the globe in that way. And um, I tell a story about um, Walter Tinshuk, the um, former chief of defense staff, and um, this is a from me to we story. He was saying, uh, he stepped down, we had a reception for him at the end of his uh, command, and he was talking to his old military buddy saying a great transformation took place to, in his life when he was about 35. He joined up in Winnipeg, a very poor family, um, was a star cadet, uh, enlisted, went to university, was rising up the ranks, and he says at 35, two or three years before these normal promotions were made, I was lieutenant colonel. He says, I thought I reached the top of Mount Everest. I was so filled with delight, pride, that my upward journey had been so uh, rapid. And then about a day later, I came off cloud nine, and I began to feel different. And then there was something eating away in me. And all of a sudden, I got up morning three and said, I'm now responsible for the lives of 1,000 people. My focus went from me to we. I was no longer concerned about the great Walt Natinchuk. I was concerned about the thousand people who, for whom I was responsible in the very best sense. And he said, a great weight came off my shoulder. Now, Walt's the kind of guy that probably went from me to we at about age six. But that's a very liberating experience, and I, I convey it to all of you from Centennial. You've done it with your three questions. Uh, you're there. Uh, but that's a very liberating influence when the world... The universe ceases to be centered around you and all of a sudden becomes centered around the people around you. And if you can expand that then to people who are really strangers, then we're getting somewhere. One more. One more. Um, I am having trouble putting it together, but I appreciate everything you've said about youth. And I think young people are great. I have a 25-year-old. I think young people are fabulous. I'm really concerned about seniors in our seniors in our society. Mm -hmm. As the whole community or nation, we're more transient. We don't have even when I was a child in the city of Toronto, I knew every senior on my street, and we were sent to make sure they didn't need something at the store or cut the grass or whatever. And people just don't know each other as well. We aren't having the extended families yourself. is the exception. Um, People are having much smaller families. They don't have the people. And more and more is having to be spent on services than used to be um, done for by friends and neighbors and family. So I'm just wondering, what do you see is happening with seniors in this great... I I love my country, but I'm just noticing more gaps and more things. Well, a number of thoughts on a very important question. Number one... um, that we should think of the whole span and the whole spectrum of family. One focuses on young, I guess, because you see such a long run. Um, But the second thing I would say is that um, caring for the seniors in our communities is beyond the capacity of governments to do by themselves. And I think we'll find this reliance upon volunteers with their time, talent, and treasure will be increasingly important. It will also be important, I think, that we rediscover the notion of family where uh, we don't abandon our, our elders um, another thing I would say is that um, that we are all living longer and we are having to learn how to age well. Uh, and the I'm now, I'll be 74 next week. I feel like a 21-year-old, but I've had, I've never worked a day in my life. I'm still on my one-year leave of absence, Amanda, from my law firm. You know, my jobs have been gifts. Every morning, 
27 years of university president, five years dean of law professor. I got up in the morning. I can't wait to get in today. It's so much fun. And that's true of the present job. How do we have that experience for a lot of people? And how do we say to people that, you know, you don't have to hang up your skates at age 60 or 65? We have to learn, I think, how to age better. Um, one of the people I admire most is a guy by the name of Ron Schlegel, who's just invested $50 million at the University of Waterloo in putting a teaching hospital on the campus. The teaching hospital is not a hospital. It's a senior's village with a continuous care unit, one part, and a modest care, another unit, and a third unit where people uh, move into when they've decided that their home is too big, etc. But he was very anxious that this be created in a, a community of young people so that old and young would mix together. Some of his other senior villages are located next to primary schools, and they're in urban areas. They're not tucked out in the country so that they can have that wonderful interaction. Final thing I would say I can go on is the Vancouver Community Foundation did a study of the most pressing need in greater Vancouver. And there are lots, but guess the one that was overwhelmingly there? It was isolation, particularly among seniors. So that's an enormous challenge for us. How do we overcome that isolation? How do we build the community networks, reinforce the family, ensure that governments do what governments can do well, and then have the community and voluntary sector help with the rest? and learn how to age well. I'd love us to be the country where we have the best um, applied research in aging well in the world. And that's not just putting off the achy knees and getting the spur parts in. It's learning how psychologically and mentally and socially that we, we function well. Thank you very much. Lots for us to think about for 2017 and beyond. I'd like to invite Mr. Matthew Rowe, director of the Empire Club, to join me on stage to thank our speaker. Thank you very much, Andrea. Uh, The role of governor general is a mighty one. The Constitution has an entire section devoted to it. And interestingly enough, the word prime minister never shows up once. Um, But... The, uh, it, it, it's a lot of responsibility, there's a lot of razzle-dazzle, and it, it can easily go to one's head. And yet, Your Excellency, you've approached the role with uh, characteristic humility, uh, with a lack of pretension, which I think could only be described as Canadian. Um, uh, traders, as an example, traders on Bay Street who were taking an early lunch today might have been surprised to see Her Majesty's representative just walking up the street from his hotel to come to this event. And I think it speaks to the kind of leadership that you have been able to provide. Um, I've, I've taken away from today that this is, well, there's been a challenge put out to all of us, and I hope everyone here leaves this lunch thinking about how they will give back, what their giving moment will be for uh, Canada 150. Um, I'm delighted, though, that, Your Excellency, you will be there with us to lead our nation in celebration during that, uh, during that wonderful year. And I think our Queen and our country are very lucky to have someone like you. Thank you very much. Before we all leave today, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsors of today's lunch. Thank you very much to Accenture, and thank you very much to to Prince's Charities Canada. I'd also... Thank you.
I'd also like to thank the National Post as our print media sponsor. This meeting will be broadcast on Rogers TV. Ladies and gentlemen, bear with me. I have to do one little pitch. We only have one more event before we break for summer, and I think it's going to be a great one. On June 23rd, next Tuesday, Victor Dodig, who is the CEO of CIBC, will be coming to speak with us about a topic near and dear to my heart, technology and banking. Uh, this is a must-attend event for anyone uh, interested in Canadian innovation. So, to learn more about membership and about upcoming events, visit us online at www.empireclub.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at empire underscore club. Thank you all for joining us today. We really appreciated seeing you. Uh, please join us again soon. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, this meeting is now adjourned. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. Ladies, ladies and gentlemen, please rise for the departure of the Governor-General of Canada.